Well, good morning, folks. It is great to be with you. And I think you will see in this message this morning how Andrew and, Andrew and Ishii were definitely led by the Lord in terms of the songs that they chose for us. Um, so this is, uh, I actually kind of got the chills as they started singing the second one. It's like, oh my goodness, this is like so good. So thank you. Um, and uh, just great to be with you all. Love you guys. Uh, this Zoom thing is great, but it also drives you crazy. Um, I would so much better, so much rather um, actually be with you all. But it is what it is. So let's um, let's ask the Lord for his uh, guidance today as we, uh, as we just um, open his word. <clears throat> Lord, we come to you today. We come to you as people that need a fresh grasp of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we know that for most of us, we already have accepted Jesus as our Savior, and we are seeking to follow him in our lives. But we know that we can so easily get confused and get uh, off track and forget the fundamentals of our faith. And we can lose the awe and the wonder of our great salvation. And so, Father, we pray that you would just draw our hearts today back to the Lord Jesus, and to the amazing plan of our salvation, to the grace that has been shown to us. We ask that you would just guide us in this today, Lord, that your spirit would be present amongst us, and that uh, you would be glorified in this time. We thank you, and we pray together in your precious name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. So, uh, we're going to start off today just by way of sort of reminder, and uh, let's see if we can get the, uh, oh, there we go. All right, the slides are up. Great. Okay. So um, we're going to be talking today, and this is the third part of our series that we're going through on uh, what we have called only one gospel today. It is part of the gospel fundamentals, uh, looking at the book of Galatians. So we are at the third one, as you can uh, see on the slide there. So the passage is Galatians chapter two, and it's verse uh, verses one to 10. As I mentioned in my prayer, it's, good for us as those that are on the journey to go back and think about those fundamentals. Think about just what it is and be wowed by it again. You'll notice, I think it was mentioned in past weeks, that uh, Galatians is written to believers. So while it's focused on the gospel message, uh, it's actually written to those that already know uh, and follow the Lord Jesus. Um, I think we make the mistake sometimes as Christians of thinking that sort of the um, 
thinking through the actual plan of salvation um, is we're sort of past that and we're, uh, we're on to higher things or better or different things. But the reality is um, we need to be constantly brought back to just remember uh, what, we, what we have been saved from, what we're saved for, the how it happened, and the, just the, uh, the amazing truth of it. So <clears throat> we also get in this book, um, really in the first two chapters, but we get sort of the closest to an autobiography by Paul of his own uh, journey. And so it's kind of neat to see it and to just sort of uh, hear his heart and uh, his journey. It's one of the first epistles that we have, perhaps the first epistle that, uh, that Paul wrote, uh, at least that we have in the canon of scripture. And uh, it's kind of written about 15 years, maybe 16 or 17 years after uh, Jesus died. So it's, you can kind of picture it, if you think around AD 50, you're within a couple of years uh, of it uh, being written. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's rich. It is absolutely rich. When you speak on this, as of course, I guess every part of scripture, but you have this inadequate feeling. It's like, oh my goodness, how do I possibly convey uh, what is here? But um, I will try. So when we talk about this one gospel, I thought I would not steal the thunder of next week's message by actually going to uh, the verses later on, which actually spell out the, the gospel quite uh, clearly. But instead, um, I thought I would look at the uh, verses where Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2. And of course, I had this all prepared before Balaji goes and reads uh, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 in our uh, Breaking of Bread service this morning. So it's just really fun how, uh, how God works. But I'm going to focus on uh, verses 8 to 10. So uh, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, just to get a uh, sort of a snapshot of what is this gospel. So here it is. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. This is a pretty succinct um, passage for describing what the gospel is. He saved us by his grace, and that happens when we believe. So brothers and sisters, there was a time in your life and in my life when this message of the gospel changed from being history and something we have knowledge about and something that we could have maybe understood from religious context. And we personally believed it. We took it and we made it our own. We saw that Jesus died on the cross, not just for everybody, but that he died for me. And at that point, when I believed I was saved by his grace. It's all his grace. There's nothing 
that I can take credit in. Think for a moment. Let me ask you a question. Who was the first person that died with his faith in a crucified Christ? Who's going to who's going to shout it out? Stephen. Who? Stephen. Stephen? Yeah. No, before that. Tom. I saw your hand up. All right. Criminal on the cross? Criminal, yes, the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross was the first one who died with his faith in a crucified Christ. And when you picture that, God often, right at the beginning, shows us something or gives us an illustration or a teaching that clarifies. And it's amazing to think about that. Because within moments of Jesus dying on the cross, the thief also died. He died nailed to a cross. He couldn't be circumcised. He couldn't do some good things. He couldn't turn over a new leaf. He couldn't add anything to his salvation. He was literally nailed to a cross beside the Lord Jesus. And so the only thing he had was his faith in a crucified Christ. And yet Jesus said to him, today, you will be with me in paradise. So in that first recipient, if I can put it that way, there were, yes, there were those that died in faith in the Old Testament up to that point, and their salvation, them going to heaven, was based on what Christ would do. But the thief on the cross was the first one that he died with his faith in that crucified Christ. And that is so amazing to actually think about. That is, the, the, that illustrates this truth. We, there is nothing that we can do. We can't take credit for it. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. As you can see, all that criminal had to offer was his record. There was nothing else. He couldn't do anything. There was no way to change or to amend his ways. All he could do was die in faith. What the 10th the verse does explain to us is that we are created. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things as he planned long ago. So it doesn't mean that the Christian life does not involve service for Christ and that doing good things are not important, but it's based on the Lord Jesus's work on the cross. It's based on the salvation that we have been given, not in order to obtain it. So that is the fundamental message of the gospel. And I would say right here for anyone listening to this message this morning, if you have not personally believed and trusted in Christ as your own personal savior, then you can do so today. If you have not, I have to tell you, then you are not saved. You do not have Christ's death on the cross 
has had zero effect on your sins if you have not trusted Christ as your Savior. His work has been accomplished. It's complete. But it has not been applied to your heart unless you have personally trusted him as your Savior. But that invitation is available to you today. Today, you can believe in your heart that, that Jesus died for you, that he rose again. And if you believe, then today, God will save you by his grace. You will receive that gift from God. That is the message of the gospel. Now I want to show you a quote from C.S. Lewis. Reality, in fact, is usually something you could not have guessed. That is one of the reasons I believe Christianity. It is a religion you could not have guessed. If it offered us just the kind of universe we had always expected, I should feel we were making it up. But in fact, it is not that sort of thing anyone would have made up. It has just that queer twist about it that real things have. So let, so let us leave behind all these boy philosophies, those oversimple answers. The problem is not simple, and the answer is not going to be simple either. I just love this. I just love this quote, because when you think about what the gospel is, totally by grace, totally on the basis of what Christ has done, nothing that we can do to deserve it. It's received by faith. Nobody could dream this up. It's, it's, and C.S. Lewis looks at this and says, there's no way. A human mind could not possibly come up with this. But if you wrestle with it sometimes, if you think, but wait, then does, you know, how does this all work? If you struggle with it, he says, it's okay. The problem is not simple, and the answer is not going to be simple either. It's okay for us to wrestle with these things and, and have to read the word again and ponder them, think about them, and then let them have their impact on our lives. It is an amazing thing. As he says, it is a religion you could not have guessed. You could not make this up. I love it. So now, let's look at our chapter and... We'll first of all look at verses one to nine, and uh, to uh, in in light of the the hymns that or the songs that uh, Andrew Nishi sang for us this morning, think of verses one to nine as lines up with the first one, and verse ten lines up with the second one. So think of it as a two part, but the first nine verses are all in the first part, and this was in a sense the meeting of all meetings in the early church, okay? I want you to think of it like when they were digging the channel between England and France. I was in, in England uh, just after the channel was completed, that tunnel that goes under the English Channel. And uh, Balaji, you'll really appreciate this uh, with your some, some serious time spent there in England, that I was with a taxi driver and uh, just after the channel was completed, and he said, you know, the, 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 an amazing thing now with the channel completed, he says, Europe will not feel so isolated. 
So um, that's that's your perspective from England, of course. But what happened there was they actually dug the channel from the England side and they dug it from France side. And they actually had different types of rock to go through. And if you read the story, it was a marvel from an engineering standpoint. They were digging three channels through. There's, there's two that the trains go through. And then there's a, a middle one that's a service one. And they had to dig down and there were huge risks involved because if they didn't get far enough under the, the English Channel, then they could have water suddenly pour through and fill the, the, fill the tunnel, which would have been, of course, catastrophic. And they, but they start from either side and they had to meet in the middle. Now you think about the engineering that had to happen so that as they're digging along, it's about 50 kilometers, I believe, 50 kilometers uh, from start to finish. And they had to meet in the middle. Okay, now I want you to picture that and the feat that that is, but think about it in terms of this meeting we're going to read about in, uh, in Galatians chapter 2, because it was like that. Here's the Apostle Paul, and there's the, he's got a message that he has received from the Lord, and he's been out preaching it. And there's the leaders in Jerusalem, and they have received their message from the Lord, and they're preaching it. And the two meet. And amazing of amazing, they actually meet and they talk to each other and they find out, yes, it's the same message that we're preaching. And they celebrate that. And that's so just kind of keep that image in your head as we read uh, these nine verses. Then 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas and Titus came along too. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. This was a divine appointment. While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message that I had been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and that I was running the race for nothing. And they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. Even that question came up only because of some so-called believers there, false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and to take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. But we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. Let me stop there for a moment. So, Paul has had this revelation on the road to Damascus. He has gone into Arabia. He has been now living out his faith. He has been preaching, and he's got companions on the journey. Um, I would... Uh, just put a word in there to notice that Paul almost never did ministry solo. And when he did, he was anxious to have the solo part end very quickly and him get back to being with other brothers on the journey. You and I need companions on the journey in ministry. Don't try to do it solo. It's not good. Paul has a Barnabas and Titus with him on this particular trip. As I mentioned, 
he is going there because God told him to go. He's connecting back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was sort of the hub or the center point for the, the church after uh, Christ went back to heaven. And he goes and meets with them there. He shares with them the message that he has been preaching. He was not doing this to check that he had the message right. Paul had got his message from divine with divine revelation. He knew, he had absolute confidence that what he was preaching was the truth. But he wanted to, he, he was seeking for unity here, and he was wanting to make sure that, in fact, there was a, that, that he, that everything was in sync. Um, Paul, as we uh, see just shortly after this passage we have this morning, when Paul thinks things are out of sync, he has no problem uh, confronting it and uh, dealing with it just right straight on. Um, but he wanted to make sure that they were all in agreement. He could picture that if there was a lack of unity, that there would be a lot of damage done in the church. As he says, I wanted to, for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. But he says, they supported me and didn't even demand that my, command, that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. Circumcision dates way back to the covenant with Abraham, and it was a symbol of coming under Jewish law and following the Jewish ways. And this was something that was sort of a, you know, it, it, was, it was kind of a foundational issue. When a Gentile became a Christian, if in fact it was the gospel was by grace alone, then there was no need for them to go under Jewish customs and uh, symbolized or at least sort of a, a key one being circumcised. If in fact there was still some sort of Jewish order or Jewish laws that needed to be maintained, then for sure it would mean that they would have to be circumcised. Now, when, as, as uh, Glenn explained to us certainly last week, when you understand the sort of what was going on at the time there, some of the social pressures, some of even the uh, political uh, or social benefits that there was for actually being considered Jewish, um, there, were, there was a situation that would have encouraged the, uh, them to try to mix uh, Christianity with Judaism. It would have actually helped in a lot of ways in terms of the social structure of the day. But it was deadly to the gospel if they were to start to preach this. And so as Paul says to us, we or says in verse five, we refuse to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. So he saw in this, that the, there was at, at stake here, there was an attack on the core message of the gospel. Now, we don't have the same kind of challenge today. So this is where studying the culture around when a passage of scripture is written, it can be good to help our understanding, but there's a danger in it. The danger in it is that we say, oh, well, that was a situation for that day, and so therefore it doesn't apply to us today. What we've got to recognize is that God orchestrated the cults, the events, the situation, the setting for his word to be written, but his word is 
as it says in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. So we need to look at the passage of scripture and say, now, how does this apply? Where are we under attack today? Where would we tend to water down the word or twist the gospel a little bit or add some components to it? And it's not going to be the same as when the, when the scripture, it won't be the same issues as when the scripture was written. But the teaching of it applies to us equally today. And so we can ask, what are those things that we would potentially be compromising in the gospel today? Moving away from the pure truth of the word of God. It's a very interesting thing as we read the word of God to ask ourselves, if I was not under any social pressure today, if I was not trying to fit in in my society today, how would I actually interpret this passage of scripture? Because that's how we need to be seeing it. God's word is supreme. God's word does not bend to the culture and the times and the values of our current society. We need to be wise. A great example of it is in Acts 17, where you have Paul in the Mars Hill setting, and Paul quotes their poets. He, he's radical in his uh, using an idol to actually preach the gospel. But after he's done that and sort of used those bridges, he then says, God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. And he has given us assurance of this in that he has raised him from the dead. Paul didn't, you know, there's no sugarcoating of the message there. There's no watering it down. Paul used the setting, used the, the environment, but then got to the point of actually communicating the, the truth of the word of God um, in, that, in that setting and time. All right, so we have seen that um, they, they turned out to be in agreement. They were supportive. And now let's go on and just look at verse six. It says, and the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. Now get this, which is, Paul must have been a, just so much fun to work with when you see some of his attitude come out here. By the way, their reputation as great leaders made no difference to me, for God has no favorites. You, you can see Paul sort of just saying it, 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 uh, he, he's, he was not impressed with, with uh, uh, people. Uh, and that's very, very healthy. Um, so many times leaders, those that have taught us and, and maybe we have learned from different authors, different people that are held great places in ministry, they fall. And if our faith is tied to them, then it's going to rock us a lot. But if we recognize that all men can fall, but it's the word of God and the spirit of God that is our guide then we can learn from those that, that instruct us in the word, but our eyes are on the Lord, and it is only him that we rest our faith in. Paul was very clear here. These were leaders in the church, but 
he was he was looking to God for divine revelation. He was looking to God for his truth, and he was standing on that, not on what the others said. In verse 7, instead they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. This is amazing to see that they had their roles and responsibilities, but they were working in unison. They were working with one message, with one, uh, with one calling. God has different roles for each of us. What God has for Balaji to do is different than what God has for, let's see, let me pick somebody else, Jacob to do. Some of you haven't even met Jacob yet, but I know Jacob. So God has different roles for each of us, different callings, and we need to hear and and understand and determine that calling on our own individual lives. Paul had a different uh, responsibility and calling than Peter did, but, but the Lord by his spirit was working for unity in the early church. It's fascinating to see that if you go back to the book of Acts, you can see that the Lord used Peter, even though Peter was primarily the apostle to the Jews, Peter was used in the early where the Spirit was given to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles, such that there would not be one group that were maybe Paul's followers and another group that would be Peter's followers. There was an overlap divinely, um, in, it, it was divinely orchestrated so that there would be unity in the early church. Verse 9, in fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. When you picture all these people, they, Paul, uh, he's got his own um, attitude sometimes. You've got Barnabas, you've got Titus. Titus, we see his character and Paul needing to work on him and his dealings with Onesimus. Titus was actually a slave owner. You've got uh, these uh, Peter, uh, James, and John. This James, as we learn from um, chapter 1 and 19, is actually the one that is the half-brother of Jesus. So it's confusing, or it could be confusing because you see Peter, James, and John here. But in fact, it's not the Peter, James, and John that uh, you have as the disciples. The, the Peter and John are the same, but the James is actually the half-brother of Jesus, not the uh, son of Zebedee. So, but God is using these different characters to build the early church, um, and we find many other uh, men and women that were used at that time, but when you just see these ones, I like to picture them, uh, God using them, and then I look at the screen in front of me, and I see the characters that God is using to build our uh, body of believers, okay? And we're just as motley a crew as the ones back then. We've got all different personality issues. We've got all different warts. We've got all different things that we, you know, it's only by God's grace that we can get along with each other and that we can uh, actually see um, the Lord do his work. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. God uses um, all of us 
each with our own gifts and our own roles to get this one gospel out. Now, verse 10, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. After all this heavy, heavy stuff, this big meeting, one of the biggest meetings of the early church, documented for us. You talk about, you know, the meeting when they decided on the canon of scripture or the meetings when they, these other things. This was the big meeting of the early church. And all this heavy doctrine and looking at what's included in the one gospel is all laid out. And then verse 10, their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I have always been eager to do. Did you notice the second song that uh, Andrew Nishi sang this morning? You live among the least of these. Brothers and sisters, if our gospel does not include the real heart of Jesus to the lost and the broken, then we have missed it entirely. We can be clear. We can know the, the, the big doctrines. We can be, you know, have our opinions on uh, eschatology. Uh, we can be, uh, you know, well-read, but if our gospel and our way of life does not include verse 10, then 1 to 9, there's lots of scripture to suggest that 1 to 9 means nothing if we don't have verse 10. The uh, James, who is the one that one of the ones that's mentioned here the half brother of jesus you you remember in his uh in his book how he talks about how you've gotta be showing that life out showing out your faith by how you live your life by actually caring for the poor he's the one that says um pure and genuine religion in the sight of god the father Sounds like something heavy is coming. And then he says, means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Remembering the poor is messy. There's neat ways to do it. There's neat ways to do it. You can, you can give to Welcome Hall Mission. and. Welcome Hall Mission is a great organization. I don't know if James is on here. I don't see him this morning, but it's James' brother, uh, Sam, that is the leader. We were mentioning it earlier on, which reminds, which reminded me of it, you know? And I can send Welcome Hall Mission 50 bucks and I can check this box. I can say, okay, I've remembered the poor. But I would like to suggest to you that it's way more than that. It's way more than that. There's a tough verse for us in Amos chapter 5. Let me just read it for you. In Amos chapter 5, it says, Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice 
an endless river of righteous living. Those are hard verses. We think about, you know, our worship Sunday morning is important to us. And he says here, away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. You say, wait a second. There's lots of verses that show about how God appreciates worship and uses worship and so on. There is. But he's getting our attention here by basically saying, if we're doing the worship part, but we're not in fact living it out, then we're missing where the rubber meets the road in terms of the Christian life, what God has called us to. In Luke chapter 10, you guys know the story well. Jesus says, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. When they saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. When he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. We know that that whole story is taught to us by Jesus as they're discussing the greatest, the most important commandments, and it is those two, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So this balance, this juxtaposition of the truth and the high calling and the amazing one gospel that we have, the grace and the truth that we have been shown, that's the one part, and then the other part that goes right along with it is to live out our faith in terms of seeking to stand for those that need support, to be, to be backing those that need backing, to be serving and helping and reaching out to those that need help. That is our calling. And it is not to check the box. And this is where I say it's, there's one thing for us to write the check to Welcome Hall for 50 bucks. And I say, that's good. And uh, if Sam was here, I hope he wouldn't be feeling dissed. But I say to actually follow in the calling that Jesus has put on our lives, it's getting muckier than that. It's actually getting into the lives. And that's the song that Andrew Nietzsche sold, sang for us this morning. We need to be there. And it is there in the margins, in the mess, in the trenches. That's where, in fact, we find Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, let's be thrilled with the one gospel that God has given to us, let us be clear on it. Let us remind each other. But let's also be involved in the uncomfortableness, the messiness of living out this Christian calling in our broken world.
one last quote from good old C.S. Lewis. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. You and I need to continue to wrestle with this stuff. We need to live it out in our lives. And if you're struggling, I sort of go, great. It probably means you're learning. I'd also challenge you with one last thing before I pray. My good old father-in-law, who is with the Lord now, one of the things he said, he had lots of books, lots and lots of books, like most of us. If I could turn my camera right here, you would see a sampling of my books. I think I can turn it up here. Just up here, you sort of see some of my books. I got great old collection writings of John Nelson Darby up over there. So you, you've, I've, got my, I've got my books. But my father-in-law would have said to us, read the books less and read the Bible more. And uh, I, he, he, was, uh, he would challenge us that way to, um, in, his, in his later years. And so I challenge us to really be in the word. Don't just read about the word, but be in the word ourselves. It's great to read books that can help us to understand. But what I find is most helpful myself is to read the word first and ask the Lord to show me what it means, show me what he would teach me in it. Then when I read a book of ministry about it, it's giving me further light. It's giving me further truth. But I'm, I'm actually digging into the word myself. You and I need to continue to learn to grasp what the gospel is and then to live it out in our lives. Let's pray. And then I might have a question for you instead of the other way around. So, Lord, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for the amazing truth of the gospel. For by grace we have been saved through faith. Lord, we marvel at it. We couldn't have possibly dreamed it up. No man could have. It came directly from your heart. It involved, it required the death of your son because payment for sin had to be made. But now because he has died and risen again, you offer it to us as a full and free salvation. Father, help us to stop messing it up by trying to add anything to it and just receive it and proclaim it for what it is. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then, Father, help us to show your heart in this lost and broken world. Help us to be your hands and feet and to be spreading your love, and to be caring, being a voice for those that need justice, being, a, being hands and feet to those that need help. And Lord Jesus, as we do that, may we show out your heart. Lord, help us to be into the word ourselves as Christians so that we're growing in our understanding of your heart. We just ask for your help. We thank you and we pray together, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.